You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a podcast and event series hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Our special guest today is the president of the Minneapolis NAACP and founder of Don't Complain, Activate, Leslie Redman. You know, one of the first things that I always ask our guests are, how do you describe yourself? What's your elevator speech on who you are? Yeah, so I like to start off with saying I'm a human being because in America, we are dehumanized so much and we're even told to dehumanize ourselves. And for me, uniquely, I've been a student almost my whole life. I started school, had started when I was two years old. This is literally my first year of not being in school. For those of you who don't know, I went to college right after high school. I went to law school right after college, and I just received the JD MBA in May of 2019. And so this year marked my one-year anniversary of not being a student, and that was very exciting. Uh, many people know that I am the president for the Minneapolis NAACP, also known as the National Association for the Advancement of Color People. Um, I am the founder of the Don't Complain Activate Movement, which is really inspired by, you don't have to be President Barack Obama or Beyonce Nose Carter in order to activate your community. You could be a mom or a dad, you could be an artist, you could be an activist or lawyer like myself. There are so many ways to activate the community and I just encourage people to choose one. So not only are you the the chapter president, but you're the youngest chapter president, as I understand it. What what did that mean for you? Like, what kind of pressure does that bring? What kind of opportunity does that bring? To your point, I think it brings a lot of pressure and also a lot of opportunity. So I was 25 years old when I became president for the Minneapolis NAACP. I was 23 when I joined the branch. Um, and so it's, it's been very quick. Uh, it's been a lot going on. I think, you know, people are excited about young people joining the NAACP and taking what I would say is our rightful place in the new civil rights and human rights movement. I think there's always been young people that have sparked the movements, and I think God has uniquely positioned us to be here. And so I'm thankful. I recognize that we have a lot of the time the energy and the ideas, and then our elders have the wisdom. And when you put those two together, we're in a really great position. Um, I'm also a part of the Next Gen Leadership um, Program that the National NAACP started. I was a part of their inaugural class. And one of the things that we talked a lot about is, you know, Leslie, do you want to just be known for being the youngest president of Minneapolis NAACP? Or do you want to be known as being one of the most effective presidents of the NAACP? And that became my new call and my new challenge, right? Because it was by the grace of God that I became the president at that young age. But everything moving forward was going to be based on what I did and the steps that I intentionally took. And so that's my real goal is to become one of the most effective presidents of the Minneapolis NAACP. And, you know, I'm standing on the shoulder of so many greats. Um, Jason Soule was the president before me, Nikita Levy Armstrong before him. And then we have Lena O. Smith, who was the first woman to lead the Minneapolis NAACP. She was also an attorney. She was also a transplant. And so I just feel like I have a lot of parallels to her. And I feel like she's with me as I'm activating. I love that. Don't just um, be the youngest, be effective. You know, I like to say, I don't want to be busy. I want to be productive. Um, You can, you can fill your time up with a lot of things and not move anything. And so I I really appreciate um, that sentiment. 
there there might be people that are listening to us that are less familiar with um, the NAACP. Would you mind just talking about um, its legacy and its importance in the African-American community? Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Even when I talk to young people, most people have heard of the NAACP, but a lot of them don't even know that it stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And so I always try to point that out. The NAACP is the oldest, oldest civil rights organization in the nation. We were founded in 1909. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that we were founded by a majority white allies and a couple of amazing black leaders like W.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells and so many others. And so the NAACP really sparked from the brutality that the black community was facing. And it's kind of crazy that in 1909, we were having to fight that fight, and we're still fighting that fight today. And so when people ask about the relevancy of the NAACP, I would think that we're more relevant now than probably ever before, because I think we're in a position to activate our community um, like never before. Almost any Black leader that you can think about that has impacted America and the liberation of Black people has had some type of involvement with the NAACP, whether we're talking about Carter G. Woodson, whether we're talking about like I say, Ida B. Well, to be the voice, our first black Supreme Court justice, and I would say our most effective one, uh, Thurgood Marshall, uh, was with the NAACP and the Legal Defense Fund. Um, Charles Hamilton Houston, who was his teacher and also a D.C. native like myself, who doesn't get as much shine. The founder of what became Brown versus Board of Education. Um, and so I just think the NAACP has always been important. And for me, I want to remind our white allies how important it is for them to rejoin the NAACP because I think they were really a part of the foundation. And these were not just everyday white people, but these were exceptional white people who had already thrived in their respective industries. You know, the NAACP, we have in common one of our past presidents of the NAACP was also the president of the ABA, you know, and we just have a lot of history that I think people don't really understand and realize that this is not just a civil rights fight. This is a human rights fight. And because of the human rights fight, we need all humanity to join us in this fight. Yeah, that's great. Jane Adams was one of the white allies that was part of um, the founding of the NAACP. Jane Adams was also one of the mothers of the Settlement House movement. Um, many people know Hall House in Chicago, um, locally, Pillsbury United Communities, where I used to be the CEO, um, was a descendant of that Settlement House movement, as is Hallie Q. Brown, as is Phyllis Wheatley for a place for folks of color um, in their later years, but originally um, immigrant communities that could, they could come together and, and co-create and look at what are the issues of today and how do we get ourselves engaged. Um, so I think the white allyship is a really important piece. Um, as we see things today, I think that there are a lot of white folks that just don't know what to do and how to get in, or they feel like they need to be completely conversant of all things black or all things of race. Um, related. And mm -hmm. um, do you think that that do you think that they have to be an expert before they get in? Or what what advice would you have for a white ally that wants to do to get in and, and roll some sleeves up? Right. 
No, I don't think you have to be an expert. I think we are all learning. You know, I'm a lifetime learner. And one of the things I often talk about is Michelle Alexander, right, who is the founder and the creator of the new Jim Crow. And she was a civil rights attorney, and she talked about it herself, and didn't understand the oppression of Black people in America, right? She was a Black woman who was a civil rights attorney who didn't understand the magnitude of the oppression that Black people were facing in America. And for me, if she could turn it around, and she was already that evolved and ended up writing new Jim Crow and really sparking a movement, I believe that anyone can. And so for me, it's about we are all at different levels. We're all at different experience and consciousness and awareness and understanding. I say it's better late than never. Get started now because you're going to have to get started at some point. Um, And so I highly encourage people, not just white allies, but black people in positions of power as well, just like Michelle Alexander. I think that we all have still a level of awakening. And for me, I think I become more awakened and learn more each and every day. And so I say, you know, come to the table humble, come to the table eager and ready to learn. Um, When I first started with the NAACP, one of the positions that I was in was the chair of the education committee. And I'm not from Minnesota, so I'm really big on making sure the voices are authentic. I realize the position I can play. I've always been a leader. I've always been able to build consensus. I've always been able to use my voice to activate. And so I got grandmothers from the community, mothers, teachers, um, people who just have experienced students. And I pulled them together to be able to elevate their voices and figure out the platform that they wanted to be created. So sometimes it's about figuring out what is your area of specialty and how can you add value to the situation, right? Because no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. So that's what I would encourage. And again, to our white allies, please become a member of NAACP, get involved. I can't tell you how many of our white brothers and sisters I talked to, and they're like, Leslie, I didn't know I could be a part of the NAACP, right? Like, people just don't know. And so that's why I think these conversations are always valuable. Yeah. So so now that we've talked about our white allies, let's talk about um, our community, our Black community. You touched on um, folks in leadership. And, um, you know, leadership is an interesting thing to navigate. And, um, you know, do you think that Black leadership is stepping into the issues uh, as strongly as we could? So that is a very interesting question, um, especially because for me, I came here as a law school student, right? So I was kind of on the boardroom side behind closed doors and what people would think is like the talented temp. Right. But at the same time, I'm from the inner city of Washington, D.C. I'm a first generation college graduate. All of my grandparents migrated from North Carolina, South Carolina, Houston, Texas. So I'm always finding the black community and making sure that I'm embedded in who we are as a people. So I would be at the protest. But then on the flip side, I would be in the boardrooms and in the classrooms. And what I realized is that there's a disconnect, a huge disconnect and a huge disregard for the value that both positions play, right? So people on the ground might feel like, well, where are the people that are in the boardrooms and at the foundations and, you know, getting the money and managing the money? And then on the flip side, the people at the Capitol and in the boardrooms would say, those protesters don't know too much. They just activating on the ground, right? And so for me, it's about how do we both value each other more, right? And realize that while we might speak different languages, we are all trying to achieve the same goal. And just because we're not in the same room doesn't mean that we're not in rooms constantly trying to activate 
and liberate black people and black bodies, right? And I think for me, so with Don't Complain Activate, I have three C's of activation, communication, collaboration, and compassion. And I think that's what we need more in the black community is one, we need to communicate with each other, know what each other are doing, know, because it's like, building trust too, I think will help with that communication of knowing that even if I'm not there and you're there, I trust that you're going to do the right thing and you can trust that I'm going to do the right thing, right? Collaborate and recognize where there are rooms for opportunity and that we are not in opposition, but we are actually each other's greatest allies. And in a state like Minnesota, which I call the white Wakanda, we cannot afford to be so divided. I told people in D.C., there's a lot of black people, so there's room for a little bit of division. In Minnesota, there's really no room for division, and we can disagree. We don't all have to agree, but we do need to recognize that we are all in the same fight, wanting to do the same goal. And then the last one, which I think is the most important, is compassion, right? Having compassion for each other, and I think that starts with having compassion for ourselves. White supremacy is just running so rapid. I think a lot of the time we don't even know how hard we're getting hit right and so we don't have compassion for ourselves and i've definitely experienced that it's hard for us to have compassion for each other and then the society doesn't have compassion for us so it becomes um very dangerous where we are in combat with each other and being distracted and this allows white supremacy to thrive even more and so what i've noticed in minnesota is there is this theory that there can only be one when i was at st thomas in my first year i was the only black student in my classes my first year and that could become very comfortable to like become that voice of authority but for me that's very not comfortable like i don't think i don't ever want to be the exceptional negro you know like i want to create platforms where it can be many of us and i was thankful that I took a semester off from St. Thomas because of all the trauma that I was encountering. I also ran to the MBA school just to get away from the law school, if you could believe it or not. And when I came back, because of all the advocacy that I had done, because of all the hardship, there were more black students that graduated with me in 2019 than ever before in the history of St. Thomas. And that's exactly what I wanted to see. Now, will that sustained is a question for St. Thomas, but I was thankful that we actually were able to shift the narrative and actually have a black person give the um, the student address at the graduation. And just those little wins of just seeing more of us and like, you know, even us as two black women being able to share the stage, right? Because a lot of times it's only quote unquote room for one in Minnesota. And I think that is the biggest issue that black leadership faces in Minnesota. Yeah, I could I could not agree with you more. In my role, I feel like, you know, sometimes the harshest critics are, are other uh, Black people, specifically Black women, who, where I'm constantly saying, we're in the same, we're in the same game, right? We're, we're running for the same goal. We're just in different seats. And, you know, navigation within a system looks like a difference when you're activating outside of a system. And there's room for both. And I think it's no different than our conversation that we just had about white allyship. There's all kinds of roles. And if you look at any of the civil rights movements, um, it definitely includes people, the faith based, the folks that are playing, the artists, the activists, the protesters, the rioters. You know, I mean, it really includes um, all efforts moving towards the same thing. And OK, when you talk about um you know, when I just hear and know of the legacy of the NAACP and, you know, we have a couple of legacy organizations in the African-American community that the Urban League, 
Um, again, mm-hmm. you're, you're the youngest, you're going to be the most effective. And here we are to your point is that, you know, we are looking at many of the same issues. They've evolved, but there's a lot of issues that are still facing the black community that you're, you're leading through. And, um, you know, I am not in a historically black organization or institution within the black community, right? I'm in, in philanthropy, historically white and broad, mm-hmm. different challenges. But both of them bring a weight mm-hmm. and a responsibility. And, you know, what what type of weight are you feeling right now with everything that's going on? Can you just give us a sense of what, what that, that weight of responsibility feels like? A hundred percent. And also, um, let me just say, you know, I went to predominantly white institutions for both undergrad, law school and business school. Even though I come from an inner city, which was predominantly black public school systems, right? And I always thought that the grass was green on the other side. I'm like, oh, those black kids at the private schools are living their best lives. They're getting a good education. They're going to be better positioned to thrive in the world. And I realized not so much, right? Like, my heart really broke when I got into these white institutions because I was, like, kind of already evolved. And I just thought about all the young people who had to go through these private school settings their entire life that are constantly invalidating them and they're having to fight for their humanity. So I wanted to say I have a lot of respect for you being at the foundation. I think that we need you at the foundation and probably at every foundation. And a couple of you, actually, to be honest, because one is just not enough. Um, And I think being at historically black institutions are probably very similar to what it's like with the HBCUs, right? And so for me, the hardest burden is one, a lot of people don't know my position is 100% voluntary. So all throughout me doing the NAACP these past five years have just been me, a labor of love, you know, and I've given up jobs, I've given up sleep, I've given up opportunities, uh, and I've given up my mental health a lot of the time for this. And it, it weighs on you and a number of factors. And, you know, my ancestors were enslaved on American soil. So I don't really like free labor. I would tell people I do not like free labor. I actually am very uncomfortable with it. Um, but Chance the Rapper once said something. He said, I'm not fighting. I'm not working for free. I'm working for freedom. So I try to, you know, just put that in my brain. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's difficult. It's very difficult because I remember when I went to George Floyd Memorial and, you know, we're doing a community memorial day, but I did attend the last memorial that they had. And I remember them asking us to cut off our phones and just be present. And I realized in that moment that I hadn't grieved, you know, and Chief Ardondo had mentioned this to me, but I was in the middle of going, going, going so much. I didn't really take consideration of it, of just how much we are constant in motion. And like the first time I hear about a murder of a black man, I'm not allowed to just be Leslie, a black woman. You know what I mean? I have to be president of the Minneapolis NAACP and show up to meetings first thing in the morning and then don't stop ever since then. Right. And, you know, and this is why I started with I'm a human being, because even myself will take away my humanity. And that's why I said I do these two events and then I do a march on Sunday. I'm going to have to really take a break, you know, because yeah. I've literally just been going nonstop. And, you know, I was at the fourth precinct for the 18 day occupation. That's what kind of led to some of me leaving law school was just feeling so not supported and so um, disregarded. 
through everything that was going on. And so, so I had to tell myself that it's okay to be compassionate towards yourself. And actually, I must be compassionate towards myself in order for me to be able to be compassionate towards anyone else. So I think that that's um, a unique plight of like historically black organizations and black leaders in these organizations is we're underfunded, understaffed, and expected to put our humanity to the side in these moments. Yeah, there's nothing like being in a leadership role and having to um, figure out how to grieve while you're leading, right? Because there's just so much grief um, that can happen um, with these images. You're managing expectations from your community. You know, you have a, a natural drive, right, to do the work. And I think the weight is the weight and the responsibility makes it difficult to put it down for a moment. And I think that is also the challenge of leadership because we know we have to focus on self-care to sustain. We also need to think about secession. And when we, when we pick up everything, it means we're not allowing others to pick things up. Have you thought about what secession looks like for you? Let me tell you something. <laughs> so I took over for Jason Soul when he went to go work for Melvin Carter, Mayor Melvin Carter. And after my first six months in of his term, I was ready to turn it over, okay? The reason why I stayed for this additional two years was to create something sustainable that could be passed on because, you know, because we've been fighting on the ground so much, we have done a really bad job at fundraising and creating sustainability. So that was one of my real big things of like, how do we get our committees activated? How do we get more strong leadership and how do we get funds? And I really think God has gifted me because throughout all this trial and pain, there have been blessings coming in. And that is better positioning me to feel okay passing on the torch. But I've been looking for my successor since before I came into this two-year term, if we're being honest, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I think it's been hard because people see how many hours I put into this. People see how much time and energy. And I've been the longest president in a long time because for a while you know we had four presidents in like four years it was like a quick turnover because McKenna came on for a special election she was there for a year Jason did a year and six months I've been in one of my term ends in November I would have been in for two years and six months um and so while that doesn't sound like a lot it's a lot especially because I was already with the NAACP before I was president and to be honest, I feel like I've done what I needed to do, you know, and I feel like even through this, our branch has really shined, you know, and I'm super thankful for that. And I am so, I would tell people one thing about, I think that's good about millennials, we're not ball hogs and we actually want to turn it over, you know, <laughs> like I think that's a part of what we want to do. And I've been in leadership roles my whole life. And I think being in school has been helpful because typically you're only in those roles for a year to two years. And so you really have to make your mark and then pass it on. And so that's exactly what I've been trying to do is make my mark and pass it on. So to your point, my prayer is that come November, <laughs> one of my leaders has been in the branch will be ready to take this thing over. All right. Well, they've been adequately notified. <laughs> so, okay, let, let's talk about another leader that's out there. And I watched um, your press conference. I've been very vocal in my support for our police chief. You know, I tell, and I have said regularly, we are living in a racist society. We have systems that have not worked for us. And I don't know why we think that Rondo uh, is an exception to that. Um, he's our first African-American police chief. Um, he came out right away after the George Floyd uh, murder. 
to denounce what that was and immediately fired uh, those four officers. You know, it's an extremely tough time for him. We have every right and we should be critical of policing. How can we be critical of policing and still support uh, Rondo? Or are you a supporter of him? I believe you are. Oh, let me tell you something. If anybody's heard any of my interviews, I sue him in. Everyone, even if they don't ask about him, I make sure that I am intentionally saluting Chief Arredondo. And I want to take a second to do that here. I said in my interview, I think he is the best, if not, he's one of, if not the best police chief in the United States. And I think everyone could learn something from him. And I think, you know, it's kind of like what they said about President Barack about, you know, they gave the black man the ship to leave, but they didn't tell him they had a hole and it was falling to the ground, right? I think that's the same kind of situation that Chief Arredondo has been put in, but I think that he is managing it tremendously. He's actually going to be at our memorial this evening. I love Chief Arredondo. I respect Chief Arredondo. The patrolling that we've been doing on Northside would not be possible, but for Chief Arredondo and his protection, he actually came out there the first couple of nights and just checked in on us. And when he would come, I would feel like it was Santa Claus. And I felt safe. And I told Chief Redondo, I probably wouldn't even feel okay living in Minnesota if he wasn't the chief. Because I don't know that people really understand what it's like to be a black person in America, in Minnesota, to be scared of the police, to know that they could kill you at any time and get away with it. And the fact that he is actually holding police officers accountable for murdering black people, I just don't know if people understand how important that is. Because one of the reasons why we've been able to be murdered by police officers is because they've never faced accountability, right? When you think about Justine DeMond, a white affluent woman from South Minneapolis being the first person in modern history to actually have a case where an officer, a black Muslim Somali man, Officer Noor, is actually charged and convicted, it speaks volumes. And so I just, I love Chief Arredondo. I support Chief Arredondo. I appreciate Chief Arredondo. And, you know, as a person that's a black leader, I get it. We always get critiques. I'm telling you, throughout all of this stuff that's been going on, me being on the front lines, I've gotten so many critiques that people don't know about. Like people telling me like crazy stuff. So I get Chief Arredondo and I respect him. And yes, to your question, I think we can 100% acknowledge that the root of policing in America is built on the backs of black bodies and slave patrols. And the policing has oppressed our community, has brutalized our community, has terrorized our community, is built on white supremacy. And for me, it's easy to support Chief Arredondo because one, we have a relationship and I've sat on panels with him two years ago where he talked about the same things I'm talking about. And audiences talked about the root of policing and slave catching and white supremacy. And he is facing a lot of backlash and he needs our help and support more than ever. And so I urge everyone to support Chief Arredondo. Yeah. Can we talk about defunding or disbanding the police? I have lots of opinions about what what that is, and um, I'm happy to share it with everyone that asked. Um, You know, I was um, not super thrilled about the way that that announcement went. Um, I think there's a lot of us out here that are working that got blindsided by that decision, maybe selfishly, um, you know, now speaking as as a human, right? Like not not Shonda as the leader at, at the foundation, but that I just felt like, how much more can we take, <laughs> right? Like, 
like it just feels like between the Drake fire and COVID and George Floyd and and just everything. Like, can you like let's get him buried? Let's honor his life, and then let's move to the next step. But let's do it thoughtfully. And um, it was very concerning to me. I understand the premise of it. And I think that radical transformation is absolutely needed. But what are your feelings around um, defunding or disbanding the police department? And so for me, and I said this, I think it's a very complicated and nuanced issue. I don't think it's black and white at all. And I actually understand both sides and think that we can find a happy medium, which is where I think we need to actually end up by actually funding and pouring money into the community for them to police themselves and be able to create jobs and opportunities, have first responders that not only help with the mental component, but actually can protect our community arms um, and then utilize the police department and work with them um, and, and call them in when necessary, right? I do believe that policing has caused a lot of trauma in our community and we have a lot of reconciliation to do. As I said, in my press conference, I think Chief Redondo is probably our best opportunity to reform any of these institutions. And to be honest, and I haven't said this yet, so look, you're getting an exclusive. If they really wanted to defund somebody, go defund the sheriff's office, go defund the state troopers. So, I to say they can go defund some other institutions. And I think that more resources does need to be poured into the community. I do think we need community policing. Personally, I would like to see the police get out of our community a little bit more, but I think we have to have a plan and have systems and institutions set up to protect our community because anybody that lives in our community realizes that we do need protection. And I do think that our community is capable of doing it. And so that's what I would really like to see, you know, think about the fourth precinct being turned back into the way. Think about jobs being created for black men and women to protect their community. And I don't think that means we get rid of the police per se. I just believe that it's about us pouring more into our community and believing that black people can police and protect their own community. So the other thing that's been um, pretty perplexing to me and all of the um, activist work is that it's been focused on the um, Minneapolis Police Department and less on the Police Federation. Do you know why that is? I'm not 100% sure, but you know that Bob Kroll, the president of the Federation, is extremely problematic and has never stood with Black lives um, in Minnesota. I think that that's a part of the root of it. But to your point, I think the reality of it is that once we even get finished dealing with police, police are like the pawns on the chess table to me, right? I'm trying to get to some of the back pieces like the education system and the healthcare system and a number of these other systems that are killing and taking black lives as well, right? And so I think it's just a matter of people pick an issue. The Minneapolis Police Department has done a really great job of giving people the ammunition that they need to attack them because they're constantly killing and brutalizing black bodies and they're kind of like the forefront. But yeah, the Federation is definitely what protects them and allows them to um, keep doing what they're doing. Can you talk about your reaction when you saw the video of George Floyd's murder? Yeah, so again, I really didn't want to look at the video. I remember when Philando was murdered in St. Paul. I was out there protesting the next day. 
but I actually didn't watch the video for a couple of weeks. And that was when I wasn't the president of the NAACP. So I had, again, a little bit more of a luxury to be able to protest, but not have my voice heard as much. So I didn't have to look at the video. In this instance, I kind of was forced and pushed to look at the video. And yeah, I was just in disbelief that Officer Chauvin was so comfortable putting his knee on the neck of George Floyd and literally taking the life out of him. I feel like Officer Chauvin failed those other three officers who, um, from my understanding, were more in training period. Um, many people found out there was a black brother who was there. He had just graduated from the academy in December. I think Officer Chauvin, as a senior officer, failed those three officers. But the reality of the situation is that all four of those officers failed George Floyd. And for me, I just couldn't have stood back and allowed that to happen. I couldn't have been negotiating with the people in the crowd and basically preventing them from stopping the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, this is where more authority has to come in. And we have to say there is natural law above man's law. And so even if that was okay, but I mean, the reality is that officers have a duty of intervention. And so one of those officers should have intervened and they should have stopped the hostility that they had towards the people in the crowd. Um, and I'm so thankful for those bystanders that were recorded and that advocated for the life. Cause I thought that just told the story of how often we have to sit on the sideline and watch our people die. And we advocate with systems and institutions and white supremacy. And they literally just keep their knee on our neck. And, yeah. you know, reminded me of Malcolm X saying, get your hand out my pocket. Right. It's like, get your knee off my neck. And, and that just happens in society in so many instances. Um, and just back to our brother, George Floyd, God rest his soul. It is, it was crazy how he was just like predicting and saying that he was about to be murdered and then him calling out to his mother and then later finding out that she was deceased. And so literally him knowing that he was going home. Right. Um, it just is mind blowing. It's devastating. And I think it was the last straw. And I think that's why we're seeing people in this unrest and this uprising because enough is enough at this point. I think COVID-19 and all the lives that it's taken and all the devastation and keeping us inside, I think it's put things into perspective and people realize you have to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And at this point, it's like, what are we really protecting? What are we really saving? And, you know, and, and for me, it's crazy too, because you think about it, George Floyd, he survived COVID and white supremacy killed him. You know what I mean? Like that is mind blowing. Yeah. America has had their knees on the neck of black folks. The, you know, at the memorial, L. Sharpton, it was a moment um, to be in the space to think about what happened to George Floyd and his family, what it unleashed across the world. What do you think the opportunity in the, of this moment is for us? if we take advantage of it? 
Honestly, I told people, I think this is the best opportunity that we've had to liberate and free black people in America. My personal opinion is black people are still uh, enslaved on American soil. We just become more free-ish. And as we know, there's always been free black people in America. But I believe the masses are still enslaved. And so I believe that this is honestly a moment that is not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy. But one thing that God has given us is we saw through COVID-19, anything in America that we want to get done, we're able to do it. And when we take white supremacy as serious as we took COVID-19, then we will see transformation. That is going to require not only listening to black people, not only giving black people a, ta- a seat at the table, but allowing us to become the decision makers, allowing us to be the top and not having to go and ask anybody's permission and keep fighting, fighting, fighting just to get our point across. It's going to require for corporations and foundations to remove all their red tape and start finding the people who are on the ground and pouring into them versus um, a lot making the people on the ground run and beg for funds, right? It's going to require the education system, which I call the public education system, 12 years of slavery, to really look at themselves and why are all these white people coming saying that they know nothing about black people and our contributions and our oppression on America when black history is not our history alone. Black history is American history. And so that means that our education system is failing us and it's miseducating, as Carter G. Wilson talked about, it's miseducating not only the Negro, but it's miseducating the masses. And so I think we have a chance not only to transform our police system, but transform our education system. Let's transform our health system, right? Um, I reminded a number of actually scholars who said they never even heard the quote. Um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, he once said that of all inequities and injustice in America, the healthcare system is the most inhumane and shocking, right? And I paraphrase that. You all go look it up yourself. But he talked about the healthcare system, and it's like now COVID 19 revealed even more the health disparities, but it's about what are we going to do about it? And not just the numbers and not just the, the statistics, but the experiences of black people, right? Of me as a black woman recognizing when I go into the hospital, I tell them something is wrong. They disregard me. They send us out hurt, bruised. We don't have health care. We don't have health care providers that look like us and trust the institutions when we know about the Tuskegee syphilis epidemic, when we know that the healthcare system has failed us time and time again. And that's why the Black Panthers started providing resources for the Black community to be able to provide for themselves. So how do we use the models that have been created? The great thing about our history is that our ancestors have already tried to create these platforms and this foundation. All we have to do is allow Black people to do it this time and help improvise them with the resources to get it done. Yeah. So you touched on philanthropy a little bit. I do feel like there's a long way to go. And I also am very proud of the way that the Minneapolis Foundation is evolving. And I have been very intentional about reaching out and asking people, how can I help? And I also know that in the realm of my influence, there's still more that needs to be done, right? That I'm not in it alone. And I do think that philanthropy is is questioning itself right now, right, based on the conversations that I've been in. But how do you think, and it's a question that I ask almost every guest, on how do you think philanthropy can be different? Is it just really removing the barriers? You know, I tell my team, like, our job is to go out and find the people that don't know how to navigate 
the system of philanthropy. There are people that have been, you know, they've grown up. They know how it works. They will find us. They will call us. They will email us. It's the people that aren't doing that, that are doing great work on the ground that we need to go out and find. And so, you know, what, what words of advice do you have for folks that are working in philanthropy or that are philanthropists that want to understand what, what they should be thinking about differently? All right. So one of the things I love, though, about not getting paid by the NAACP is to give me the freedom to say everything that I want. So this is going to be, I'm going to give you a disclaimer for everybody that's listening. This is going to be very honest and very direct. And so before I give any critiques, I want to give thanks first to the foundations that have been stepping up, like you at the Minneapolis Foundation, like Pillsbury. Um, I love the letter that the Target CEO put out. I thought that that was yeah, phenomenal. Right. I'll be mm-hmm. honest, I haven't seen it in action as much, but I appreciated the statement and I look forward to seeing it in action. I think that it is very important to have black leadership, not just one black leader in these institutions, but multiple black leaders. I think that they need to reach out again and find us, stop asking us to find them. Um, You know, the Bush Foundation, which is an organization that people typically look at as like the great organization. I cannot tell you how many critiques I hear from on the ground. So I don't know if they just don't have their ears to the street or what is going on, but there are black people who get contracted to do work with them. And then everything about them that is great continues to be pull, pull, pull. And, and white, right? And like we try to whiten history and whitewash history. Um, you think about the Bush Foundation and how they pick the Bush fellows, right? Like why are they not going out finding people who are doing the work and letting them be fellows versus asking people to go through this very intense cycle? I just feel like we put a greater burden on the people who are already burdened, right? And so what I think foundations need to do is remove those burdens, remove those barriers. And it's not to say I'm very big on, I get process. I actually really respect process and procedure. I also recognize that there are certain instances where process and procedure needs to be thrown out the window, right? Similar to COVID-19, we recognize that it was an emergency and people were dying. White supremacy is an emergency and people have been dying for hundreds of years. So that same energy that we gave to COVID-19, that's all I'm asking. Give it to Black people, right? Do your processes, do your procedures, and then recognize that there are certain communities and certain people that do not have the luxury to go through your processes and your procedures and reach out to them and treat this like the state of emergency that we are in. Last question. So NAACP, you know, you you said that you haven't been able to work as much on um, infrastructure and building the capacity because you have been on the ground doing the work. And I do think that there are things that could be done to support your work. If people wanted to support the NAACP, you've already did a call out to all people and white people to join the NAACP and become part of um, you know, the drawn majors for, for justice. Um, but how else can people, um, support your work? Where would you uh, direct them? Yeah. So first follow us on social media because we're giving all of our updates on there where NAACP and PLS, you can find us on all major social media platforms. My social media is just Leslie E. Redman. Um, you can also email us at president at NPLS, NAACP.org. Uh, we also have a PayPal. Um, me and Shonda was talking earlier and I think you're going to release the link. 
um, we're working, and this is kind of separate, but it's something that sparked from the NAACP work of creating a patrol and protection company where we're actually hiring black people from the community to protect and serve their own community. Uh, we have a really big goal. Shonda, I don't know when this is going to be released, but our goal is to raise $500,000 by Juneteenth. That's Juneteenth. And, you know, some people will be like, oh, that's a crazy goal. But my mother told me to have crazy faith, right? And I know that when I was a young inner city girl growing up in D.C., nobody even thought I could make it to become a lawyer, right? They didn't even know if I was going to end up going to college and graduating. And so I just know that God sits high and he looks low and he has amazing plans. And he's put this on my heart to really help create this company. And I need you all to pour into it without the red tape. Amen. Do all the advice that I've been giving y'all. Pour into this. We have a great GoFundMe. We have people ready to work. We have trainers ready to train. We just need the capital to get this activated. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess I do have a follow-up question to that because I think that um, to provide some more context to this, that after George Floyd and folks were rioting and going through neighborhoods, and then there was a real fear, um, a substantiated fear, that there were white supremacists that were coming from other communities, coming here to basically terrorize, scare, harm, um, uh, upset, co-op, um, the protesting that was going on. And so you and others organized a system of community folks that were out protecting our neighborhoods. And I, you know, I live here on the North side. I've heard a number of people say I was able to sleep because I knew Leslie and the guys were outside. So you're essentially trying to move that effort forward. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. We actually had a really good feature in the Washington Post that you all should check out. Even though I really didn't want the media on the ground, they got some really great footage, and I do think that they caught the essence of what was going on. And one of the brothers who was in the video, his name is Tyrone, he actually served in the military. And so I thought that that was a really great example of these Black people are people who have served the country and are now trying to serve their community, right? And these are some of the people who have been disenfranchised. And one of my goals from what I saw on the ground, there were people who came up and that wanted to be involved that maybe couldn't be involved because we have targeted and disenfranchised our community. So one of the things that I would like to see, in addition to us fighting to restore the vote, which we've been fighting for years about, I want to restore the Second Amendment right for people who have felony convictions. We know that the Black community has been targeted and disenfranchised, right? And so how do we, because when we talk about reparations, is bigger, right, than this one big package deal. I think restoring our Second Amendment rights uh, will benefit Americans overall. Really interesting. Second Amendment rights. We'll have to talk about that next time. <laughs> There's a big debate Another on that. Another show. Let's do Another it. Another <laughs> show. So, you know, I appreciate you, sister. I appreciate your, your leadership. I've appreciated, I guess, for you being non-Native. There's a lot of people that aren't from here that say, I don't know how to get involved. Or there's people that maybe live in the suburbs that say, I don't know how to get involved or I don't need to be involved with issues that don't relate to me and my community. And I think if anything, COVID-19 and the murder of George Floyd has showcased to us once again how connected all of our communities are and how there's a place for everyone to do right all the time, every time. And so I'm hoping that um, the listeners here, um, if you've heard something that uh, Leslie Redmond has said, um, the youngest and most effective president of the NAACP chapter. <laughs> Please follow her, support the work, 
Um, if you want to get engaged, there's lots of ways to get plugged in and there's lots of guides that will help you uh, feel comfortable as you do so. So um, thank you for listening. Leslie, thank you so thing? much. You absolutely can. I just wanted to say, I didn't mention this earlier, but humility is key, right? Because you said something that was very important. I'm not a native of Minnesota and I acknowledge that all the time, right? And I know that a lot of people came in DC and they occupied the space and they wanted to be the voice. And when I was younger, I used to say, I want to be the voice of the voiceless. And I was specifically talking about my inner city DC community. As I got older, I recognized I didn't want to be the voice for anybody. I just wanted to create platforms for people to have their own voice, right? When I'm working and I was on the ground in the community, I was just creating a platform and I'm very aware of that. And I don't want to act as if I'm trying to take credit for it. I work with brother Jamil Jackson, who was phenomenal, a number of amazing black women and men. I'm very big on elevating the voices. That's why the majority of my NAACP executive committee are from Minnesota, whether it be St. Paul or Minneapolis, my vice presidents, my treasurers, they're all from Minnesota or some of our elders have been in Minnesota for over 50 years. And so I'm really big on elevating the voices of the natives and not overshadowing that and recognizing my place in the movement. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Some of us from here be like, who are these people coming in? <laughs> but we're all needed. And I think that's the point, right? Is understanding what our role is. And, you know, the thing that I think is important about what you said and what I think is an important aspect of leadership is actually decentralizing yourself that you're not the most effective when, when you're rotating all your decisions about what is good for you. It's when it, what is good for others and what is my role in supporting others and serving others. And I think that for me, that's the ultimate place that you can get to as a leader is that it's not about your way. It's about understanding all the ways that people can get involved. And I think this is the beauty of the moment. And I understand folks that might be hesitant um, to get involved because we're, um, we're, we're, we're moving into a cancel society. You know, I don't like what you said. I cancel you. And I think for us all to be um, involved, we have to evolve from that. And we have to know that we are all on and a journey. And they cancel we're Jesus Christ. I just wanted to say they cancel Jesus Christ. So Big Ma always told me, Leslie, everybody's not going to like you. And they're not going to like what you have to say. And it can become very comfortable being liked. And I think, you know, for a while, I it's funny. I thought I love D.C. People did start liking me a little bit, right? In D.C., I was kind of okay with not being liked. And God told me in this season, it's time to be courageous and to continue to just speak truth to power. And it's okay for people to not like you and not like what you have to say. But my hope is that you at least will be moved by something that I have to say. You don't have to like me, but I pray that my words will at least touch your heart so that you can go and activate in whatever space you want to do it. That's a perfect way to end. Thank you. Thanks. To listen to more episodes and learn about upcoming events, please visit conversationswithshonda.org. You can follow Shonda on Twitter at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Pak Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.